0: Please include the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. in your year-end giving. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385. For a year-end tax-deductible donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our latest book, The Wittenberg Trail, Paths to Lutheranism, and a new recording of 22 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support at the end of 2022 we all have heard the news stories they're largely local news stories and then they somehow bubble up as national news stories usually around election time about the School board, the local school board and the meeting and the contentious arguments being made by mothers and fathers and the parents of students about what their kids are being taught in the local public school. Why has that become a national battlefield? Welcome back to Issues Cetera. We're going to be talking about progressive public education. Josh Pauling joins us. He's a classical educator, head elder at All Saints Lutheran Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's a columnist for Modern Reformation and Salvo, and he's written a three-part series for Salvo magazine titled Schoolhouse Rots. Josh, welcome back.
1: Hey, Todd, thanks for having me.
0: Why have local school board meetings become a national battleground?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons for this. I think one reason is the last few years during the pandemic, people really saw the weaknesses and problems of the public schooling system. What used to be able to be hidden behind day-to-day operations, now we're in full view of parents as students were at home and schooling from home. I think another concern is the growing issue of how gender and race are being taught in schools and also a very activist approach to social issues in the classroom. I think also there's just additional data as far as educational outcomes go. These are continuing to accumulate each year. We just saw the 2022 Nations Report Card released by the NAEP, which is the National Assessment of Educational Progress. And this really showed a lot of significant learning losses from the past few years across a variety of measures in math and reading both. And then I think also it's because our political environment has really become so nationalized. The way our media functions, the digital environment we live in. National rhetoric has really been brought down to the level of local political races, especially school boards. And I think school board races are especially a place where we see this manifest is because it involves children, right? And all parents want what's best for their own kids. So this has been true all over the country. I've seen it in my own local community uh, where I used to be a public school teacher. The last few years, school board meetings have had large crowds, sometimes people chanting outside. Our local newspaper has followed this very closely, as have other media sources as well. And in this year's school board elections, we really saw a, an increase in newcomers who were running for the board, and they all had their various platform forms of reform. What used to be really a, a fairly mundane aspect of local civic life now was really charged with a political rhetoric that we hadn't really seen before.
0: You say that the rot in public schools comes down to the foundational assumptions about humanity and reality, how so?
1: Yeah, I think this is really an important thing to grasp and one that uh, I'm continuing to see more and more and I know others are as well. And it takes time. I think for a long time we assumed what was happening in public schools would be fine because it was probably fine for us. But I think what we're seeing today when it comes to things like educational underperformance or curricular changes or the other issues I mentioned in the prior question We're really starting to see that these things haven't just popped out of nowhere. They may become more obvious in the past few years, but it's really a process that's taken over a century. And I like to use the analogy of a tree to help understand this. When a tree dies, it usually dies pretty slowly, right? It's not just, you know, one day you you go out and the tree is full of leaves and the next day you, you go out and it's all dead. It's a slow, gradual process. Year after year, there might be less green leaves. The fruit may not produce as much or whatever it is. Slowly, the tree dies. And I think that's what we're seeing with education. The roots of the tree have been growing in contaminated soil of faulty ideas for a long time. Faulty ideas about, say, human nature or truth or knowledge. And that contaminated soil has had effects on the tree. It's causing disease, decay, and rot in the tree and in its fruit. And I think those problems will become more evident with each passing year, because again, it's growing in contaminated soil.
0: What are the assumptions of traditional education?
1: Yeah, so if we wanna talk about traditional education in comparison to progressive education, first I'd like to start off by defining traditional. By that, I don't mean public schools from the 1950s. Even then, the tree might have still been growing pretty well, even though it was growing in contaminated soil, it might just not have been as obvious yet. And part of that is because as well, there was more borrowed capital, say, in the 1950s from Christianity and its shared moral framework. So many times when people hear the word traditional education, I think they just think of going back to what their school was like, what they remember. And that's not really what I mean here. What I mean by traditional education is a historic approach to education that's been used all over the world by different societies in different times and places to train their young in both academic matters and practical skills. And societies have done this in lots of ways, but there are certain assumptions about these traditional approaches to education that I do think share a lot in common. And I think here are some of the assumptions a traditional approach shares in common. For one, education is seen as a human formation, towards an ideal, towards a goal. It had a transcendent frame of reference. And truth, goodness, beauty were understood as real things. And students were pointed to such things, they were directed to such things. And those things were knowable. There also tended to be an understanding that that humans wouldn't just naturally come to such profound insights or discovery. That humans had to be disciplined, trained, nourished in order to achieve positive outcomes and positive formation. There was also a clear vision of what it meant to be a well-rounded person. And that was the vision that was to be cast by educators, to be cast by teachers, by professors, by institutions, by pastors. All of those people were to cast this vision and invite students to join the chase to follow after truth, goodness, beauty, to join in the great conversation. And the role of the teacher was to lead the way. Students follow their master, right? That's really the core of traditional education. And we see this in the word education itself. In Latin, that is educere, which means to lead out, right? So educere, to lead out. Think of this maybe as plato's cave the famous cave analogy of plato the philosopher right you have these people that are in the cave and all they see are shadows on the wall of the cave and they think it's amazing they're watching the shadows right but then somebody comes and leads them out of the cave into the experience of three-dimensional reality and all the colors and all the, the variegations of real life that's what education is you take an individual from the shallows or the shadows and into the three-dimensional experience of deep meaning i think another aspect of traditional education is from a greek word mimesis which means imitation education is at its core an imitative process because we're imitative creatures here the work of philosopher rene Girard is very helpful he really talks about mimetic desire in all aspects of life that it's a major force that really forms society and shapes us So students will always imitate something. And the task of traditional education is to hold out models that are worthy of such imitation. And that's also part of the role of the teacher to embody that same with parents and professors and pastors. So I think those are the things that would constitute the core of traditional education.
0: What are the assumptions then of progressive education?
1: Here's where we really, I think can see a big difference. Uh, Progressive education has very different assumptions. First, progressive education assumes that humans are inherently good. Thus, education should be primarily about helping humans self-express, right? That there's inherently good things that need to be brought out of the person. And the teacher's role is to design experiences to help students express themselves or to socialize. We see a lot of major influences, major figures in progressive education and its history. I'll mention a few of them that I think are very influential today. One would be Jean-Jacques Rousseau. One of his biggest concepts when it comes to education was the idea that humans are inherently good, but corrupted by the structures of society. So if that's the case, that's gonna inform how you educate the child, how you treat the child in the classroom. This idea uh, would be furthered throughout the centuries until we get to a figure like Maria Montessori Uh, That's a name that people might know because of Montessori schools, right? A, A common mode, especially for preschools, to follow. And Montessori argued that education should be structured to allow the goodness of students to shine through. And if you know anything about Montessori schools, that's really what they do. They're very unstructured. They allow the student or the child to really direct and explore and to do projects and so forth. And that relates to Montessori's anthropology, her understanding of human nature as something that was inherently good. And then probably the most recognizable name here that I want to mention is John Dewey, who really saw education as a route to self-expression and actualization. That through this educational process, we're socialized, we learn to collaborate, and that's really what helps democratic society evolve and progress. For Dewey, education was about socialization into a democracy and helping that democracy progress.
0: What is constructivism, and how is it taught in the education departments of higher education?
1: Constructivism, I think, is a really good term to summarize what progressive education ends up being. It helps encapsulate what theorists, like I just mentioned, Dewey, Montessori, and Rousseau have led us to. And colleges of education draw very heavily on this theory. During my years teaching and when I was working on a master's degree in education, there were really no significant alternatives to constructivism offered. It really just was assumed as a correct theory of how people learn. So what is constructivism? At its core, it's the idea that knowledge is a social construction, that knowledge is constructed by individuals or groups based on their experiences and environments. And here's a couple quotes from some colleges of education that might help flesh this out a little bit. Here's one. Quote, people actively construct or make their own knowledge and reality is determined by your experiences as a learner. Here's one from another college of education. Quote, as people experience the world and reflect upon those experiences, they build their own representations and incorporate new information into their pre-existing knowledge or schemas. So that's really constructivism at its core, that knowledge is something that is constructed by individuals or groups in a social setting.
0: What are the downstream effects of constructivism in the public school classroom?
1: There's definitely effects on the practice of teaching and colleges of education are where this really is very evident. Here's another quote from a college of education. Quotes, because knowledge cannot be directly imparted to students, the goal of teaching is to provide experiences that facilitate the construction of knowledge. Only an experience can facilitate students to construct their own knowledge. Therefore, the goal of teaching is to design these experiences. So if that's what we think about how knowledge is constructed, then the teacher really becomes a sideline referee or a cheerleader. And then also this has impacts on the student, The student begins to think of themselves as the measure of truth and that their experience defines reality. So it leads to a classroom environment where there's little guidance and direction for students and that uh, they really become the driver. I think maybe to put it a little frankly, this is how we end up with students choosing to do projects on Taylor Swift or Kanye West rather than Frederick Douglass or Abigail Adams.
0: Since constructivism rejects objective truth and reality, what takes their place?
1: This is how we end up with self-construction. Relativism, subjectivism, self-creation, right? It just sort of follows from the constructivist approach to learning. Now I think it's also important to acknowledge something that constructivism gets right. Students do construct a world picture. We all construct a world picture all the time, right? We have a worldview a way we look at the world, lenses or glasses which we see the world through. And certainly culture and education play a large role in shaping that process. But the problem with constructivism is it doesn't see that there's an objective world and reality that those constructions should tap into. That's really the problem with constructivism. Constructivism functions on the presupposition that there is no objective truth or transcendent reality. ground our experience or knowledge so we end up untethered from reality or anything outside of ourselves
0: josh pauling is our guest we're talking about progressive public education when we return what's the goal of this constructivist education idea
2: What does it mean to be a man? The December issue of The Lutheran Witness takes up the question of anthropology. And for us as Lutherans, understanding what man is and who man is begins first and foremost with understanding who Jesus is and what he has done, how he is the perfect man. Pick up your copy today by visiting cph.org slash witness or visit our website witness.lsms.org, to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. The Word of God, daily worship, Lutheran hymnody and catechesis, instruction in phonics, traditional math, literature, grammar, history, Latin, and strings. It's all part of our daily life here at St. Paul Lutheran School in Hamill, Illinois. St. Paul is seeking teaching candidates for the 2023-24 school year. Learn more at school at stpaulhamel.org. Consider joining the faithful faculty at the only classical Lutheran school in greater St. Louis, school at stpaulhamill.org. Charlotte, North Carolina is one of the fastest-growing metros in the United States with numerous company headquarters calling the Queen City home. Folks from all around the country have come to Charlotte for its temperate climate and convenient location between the mountains and the beach. If work, family, or vacation brings you to our area, we warmly invite you to join us at All Saints Lutheran Church, the congregation confessional and doctrine and liturgical in
0: practice. Find us online at allsaintslutheran.org.
2: Essential Exercise for the Christian Mind You're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, President of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose.
1: The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others of dying to self for the sake of serving others and a life of
2: service is a life well lived truth freedom vocation concordia university chicago cuchicago.edu
0: Welcome back. We're talking about progressive public education. I'm Todd Wilkin, this is Issues Etc. Josh Pauling is our guest, author of a three-part series in Salvo Magazine titled Schoolhouse Rots. Josh, what is the goal of a constructivist education?
1: I think the goal really is self-expression and socialization. If we think of Dewey, Rousseau, Montessori, and others, that's really the language they use, self-expression, socialization, and so forth. I'll give an, another quote from a more recent theorist as well that I think echoes that as well. One of the theorists that we read a lot in university was Maxine Greene. And she said this, the teacher must make it possible for students to create meanings in a cosmos devoid of objective meaning, to find reasons for being, All right? So there's a quote from one of the most prominent 20th century educational theorists, and that's evident in more of her works as well. So I'm not just making this up or exaggerating. It really is there. There's this idea of self-construction, creating meanings in a cosmos devoid of meaning. And I think this is really where the goals of constructivist education also are at their weakest. They almost seem self-defeating. Maybe to turn a phrase on its head, constructivism ultimately deconstructs. Because here's why. If everything is a construction of the human will or my internal self, why bother with education in the first place, right? If education is not rooted in absolute principles or transcendent truth, it really serves no purpose. We end up replacing permanent things with our own self-constructions. And if that's the case, well, might as well just let me create my own self-constructions. No reason for the educational process to even be done. It really undercuts itself. So what does
0: this constructivist education actually mean Produce?
1: It produces narcissistic, self assured students. It really doesn't produce students with true wisdom or a transcendent view of the world. It tends to produce students that have very little true wisdom and also very little resiliency to face a challenging world.
0: How do you respond to the assertion that constructivist education is neutral?
1: Yeah, this is a very common assumption or claim in colleges of education and so forth. In the whole realm of public education, the idea that a teacher should be neutral. But really no form of education is neutral. It's impossible. We all have certain assumptions about the world, about truth, about humanity and so forth. And as we've discussed thus far, the assumptions of constructivism aren't true to reality. So it's very much not a neutral system, just like any system of teaching could not be. I would also say as well that when teachers claim neutrality or attempt to be neutral, they're also sending a message that truth is relative. And that is something that students pick up on as well. And then thirdly, I'd say that even if a teacher attempts to be neutral, personal bias still comes through in what sources are used, in what perspectives are privileged or prohibited in the classroom, and in what information is included or excluded.
0: Have the students themselves, the alleged target of this educational method, have they absorbed the assumptions of the constructivist ideas?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely, Todd, for sure. I think we see it in several areas. One is certainly the relativism of students. And this goes back a long ways. For decades, we've seen numbers that are really shocking when it comes to relativism. One example from about 20 years ago, Barna did a big survey and found that over 80% of teens believe moral truth depended on the circumstances. Only 6% of teens said moral truth was absolute. And those are the types of numbers we've been seeing for quite some time. Then also, another result of this is, is narcissism. Uh, This system of education produces narcissism. And here, the numbers bear this out. This has been a documented increase. I'll just give a couple examples here. In 1950, the Gallup poll was given to high school seniors that asked them if they considered themselves to be a very important person. Only 12% said yes. The same question was asked again in the early 2000s. 80% said yes. And I think that would be a very interesting question to ask since the smartphone (laughs) and how that's also changed our, our narcissism, our reflection, our under understanding of ourself. So these numbers are real. These aren't just imagined changes. These are certainly fruits of constructivism. And I think there's also some more recent ones as well that are coming onto the scene. So let's walk through a couple of those. One, if I determine truth for myself, if I buy into the assumptions of constructivism, then I'm really the center of my world and you have no right to criticize my lived experience or my truth, right? So this really leads to starker divisions between individuals and groups as groups with shared lived experiences start to form stronger bonds within the group in distinction from those with different lived experiences outside the group. And that's a dangerous game, a recipe for growing divisions within society. And I think also we're seeing constructivism's effects in the growing number of teens that identify as non-binary, right? Basically those are constructed forms of self-identity. In other words, constructivism applied to gender. So I think we're seeing it in those areas.
0: Harvard law professor Elizabeth Barthollet recently called for a ban on homeschooling. We'll get into homeschooling a little bit later. She said, from early on, our law recognized that the state has a role to play in child rearing, notice not education, child rearing, and that parents have responsibilities and not just rights. How do you respond?
1: Yeah, this has been an interesting argument to see with Bartholet and others in recent times here. I think really what we see in Bartholet's quote here is just how expansive her view of the government is and also how language is really being twisted. She says parents have responsibilities and not just rights, but she's using that language to refer to this responsibility of parents to the state, not to their own children. And that's really an improper ordering of government and family, right? The family is a pre-political institution, meaning that parents' primary responsibilities are to their own children, not to the state. And so Bartholet's perspective here, I think, really reveals a, just a very expansive view of the government. I think also Bartholet is part of a larger movement of folks who are questioning the whole role of parenting to begin with, arguing that parents, for example, should not indoctrinate their children in any way, and also arguing that only self-chosen arrangements of consent are valid relationships of authority.
0: Give us some examples of how public education propagates progressive assumptions from your own time as a public school teacher.
1: Sure. So I taught public school history in a high school, very diverse high school, quite large, and certainly enjoyed my time there. It was a great experience, but certainly things over time became more clear and evident. One of the areas where things became more clear was in uh, what resources were available in the classroom and how issues were framed. And so I'll give a couple examples here. In the history class, certainly we're dealing with a lot of relevant current events and uh, issues regarding race and gender and so forth. And I'll give one here regarding gender and, and family. Very common to see issues framed in a progressive way when it comes to women's roles and rights. So, I'll give you the example of uh, second wave feminism from the 1960s. Frequently, when textbooks or sources refer to second wave feminism from the 1960s, they talk about it as freeing women from the home where they had been confined and relegated in previous generations. So, that construction puts a very negative connotation on the home, right, as something where women were sort of stuck in in the past. And really, that is a very limited view of the past, a very shallow view of the past. It doesn't even acknowledge that in pre-industrial society, the home was the place of economic production for both mothers and fathers, right? And children contributed to that as well. So really, it's a very limited view that textbooks put forward, but it's framed in a very progressive way, right? That women were being freed from the home. That's certainly one example that I saw a lot. And students really were just sort of boggled to even think about pre-industrial societies. They just couldn't wrap their heads around the idea that there was something actually quite freeing about the home environment in the pre-industrial world, that there was productivity and fruitfulness in the home, that people were working together, that women had agency in the home. They were involved in economic productivity, husbands and wives together and so forth. And that was really an area where I saw those progressive assumptions. And certainly there'd be others as well, but that was an obvious one.
0: Talk about how kind of a faceless public school bureaucracy throttled online access to conservative resources. You give some pretty remarkable examples there.
1: Yeah, this was interesting, especially the last few years, noticed it more and more. Uh, And so I'll stick with the family example here since we talked about that in the prior question. I was doing some research one day at school on family. We were dealing with, I think if I remember right, it was the 1900s and how family situations were changing due to industrialization. So I was doing some research and thinking about doing a project with the students and looking at what sources were available and so forth. And so uh, I wanted to look at some sources from a conservative perspective that were offering sort of a traditional view of the family. So immediately I thought of the Ruth Institute and also the International Organization of the Family. And so I tried to search those sites and both of them came up blocked on the, uh, the school computers, the internet blocking software blocked both of those. This was really interesting to me. These sites weren't anything inappropriate. They were offering simply a traditional historic perspective on family and morality. But when I looked on the website blocked message, the wording revealed that these were considered hate groups. So the reason that the sites were blocked was, quote, violence slash hate group. This was really telling to me. I also noticed this when it came to what resources and books were available for purchase for classroom libraries. Many states across the country have been trying to grow classroom libraries so that each individual room has books that students can take home to read to try to improve literacy, right? Great idea. A lot of money's been devoted to it in in the state I'm in and other states as well. But when it came time to purchase those books for the classroom, they were limited, ideologically so, what books you could purchase, right? They were sort of pre-selected selections that were geared in a very progressive direction. So those are a few examples. And I do just wanna note that these examples I'm giving aren't from a major city in a blue state, okay? These were from a very red state in the middle of the Bible Belt South with a Republican-controlled legislature and executive, okay? I think that's important to note. It doesn't really matter where you are. Public schools provide virtually the same product across the country. The is similar, the textbooks are the same. Anywhere there's a smartphone, a computer, the internet and television, you've got the same issues. So I think that's important to note. We're discussing
0: progressive public education with Josh Pauling. This is Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Folks, you won't find progressive education at Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas. And if you're looking for educational options in 2023, Check out Faith Lutheran School at flsplano.org. Faith Lutheran offers a classical Lutheran education for pre-K through 12th grade students. They also provide live online classes with student-teacher interaction for high school students worldwide. Learn more at flsplano.org. Faith Lutheran School, Plano, Texas. flsplano.org. On the other side, Josh says he believes that there's no one behind the curtain pulling the progressive levers. We'll see what he means next. include the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. in your year-end giving. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385. For a year-end tax-deductible donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our latest book, The Wittenberg Trail, Paths to Lutheranism, and a new recording of 22 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support at the end of 2022.
2: To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Others talk. We have something to say. You're listening to Issues Etc.
1: Do you long for a church where the gospel of the sinner's free justification is front and center, and yet where a robust sacramental life is confessed and lived? Do you long for a church that rejoices in the sacred scriptures as the sole basis for the church's teaching and proclamation, yet values and listens to the witness of the ancient fathers and councils? Welcome to the Lutheran Church. We are what you've been looking for. Find a Christ-centered, cross-focused church near you on the Find the Church page at issuesetc.org.
2: Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy publishes Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatics Series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up to receive their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. lutheracademy.com and like them on Facebook, facebook.com slash lutheracademy.
0: Welcome back. We're talking about progressive public education with Josh Pauling, author of a three-part series for Salvo magazine titled Schoolhouse Rots. Josh, you say that you believe that there's no one behind the curtain pulling the progressive levers. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, yeah, this is, I think, an important point, at least from my perspective, to acknowledge. What I mean here is there was no conspiracy. Okay, it's not like people down at the district office in my local town were sitting around and saying, "Okay, we need to block conservative websites at school. That's not what they were saying. Honestly, they probably didn't even know. These programs they're using, these website blocking softwares and so forth, those are things way beyond the local school district, right? Those are international companies or at least national companies, corporations that have settings that are just, you know, defaulted in certain directions. So there was no one person at the district office that had it out for traditional morality. These things were being decided well beyond the ballot box, well beyond each local district, hidden deep within the bowels of bureaucracy, we might say. And really, it comes from sources that are things like the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, which puts out a, a hate watch each year. And groups that get put on that list then probably are the groups that internet blocking software companies then use to populate and generate what things should be blocked or not blocked, right? So it just sort of happens. Things sort of default in that progressive direction, not because one person in my district decided to do so, but because, again, sort of the default cultural direction. I think that's an important point to note. I think it helps us avoid conspiratorial thinking. I think it also helps us avoid demonizing others
0: what are the alternatives to public education
1: so i would say there are probably three main options and then a lot of variations within them so certainly public schooling is is still an option that's on the table i would say that if a christian family is going to do that they would need to do significant after schooling i call it and by that, I mean, you really have to be devoted to digging into what your student is learning with a diligent second to none. And that certainly is gonna take a lot of time, especially as things become more obvious as far as you know leaning in that progressive direction, as I've mentioned. So that's certainly an option. Private schooling, I think could be broken down into two main camps, maybe just for simplicity's sake here. Uh, private schools, one type of private school tends to mimic the public school. We might say progressive education with a side order of Jesus. Then there are private schools that really embrace their identity, right? And there'd be certainly Christian schools in this category that make sure that their curriculum is is soaked with the gospel and permeated by the divine logos and so forth. Those would certainly be good options. And then a third option would be homeschooling. And there's a lot of variations within that as well uh, when it comes to curriculum and so forth. Then there's also hybrid models, co-ops, micro models that are emerging. I think we're really in an interesting moment here when it comes to new ideas about education. And a lot of it, what I think is most exciting, and a lot of it's being driven by local families, communities, and churches who are deciding to do this. They're taking bold steps and they're, they're willing to try something, right? Because if we don't try, then we never know. So I would say those are the options that we see broadly speaking today. How do
0: you respond to the assertion that our children are, are like missionaries? in the public schools?
1: Sure. Yeah, I've certainly heard this one a lot. I know it's a a common sentiment and I, I understand it to a certain degree, but I think it's really a big ask. It's like expecting maybe a carpenter with no tools to build a house, right? Have we given our students, our kids, the tools to analyze what they're being taught and communicate an alternative, right? When would we have done all of that if they're at school all the time? I think also this idea of students as missionaries misunderstands the purpose of education. Education is about human formation. It's not supposed to be a a battleground, especially for children. And I think lastly as well, the student as missionary approach frequently, it just doesn't pan out. By the time we get to the last few years of high school, all bets are off. I know that for myself, you know, the first few years of high school, I really tried to live out my Christian faith very faithfully. But by the last few years, you know, you just sort of weaken and and it gets harder to do so. So I think those are reasons why we need to think carefully about that student as missionary concept.
0: When it comes to homeschooling, what does that inevitable question about socialization actually reveal?
1: Yeah, that's so true. I've got that question frequently myself since we currently homeschool our kids. And one of the most common questions is, well, what about socialization? How are they going to be socialized and so forth? I think really that just reveals how deep John Dewey's influence goes. And perhaps the best retort is socialized into what? And I've used that sometimes if I know the person well and can sort of fire back like that. In some cases, it might not be appropriate, but I think it's a valid question to ask in the right context. Socialized into what? At what other times in our lives besides school are we put into artificial age-segregated groups only to socialize with people our age? Is that really the best way to form mature and refined socialization anyway? So yeah, that's what I'd say to that question.
0: Is this a great opportunity for, you had mentioned private schools, parochial schools. Is it a good opportunity for Lutheran schools?
1: Oh, absolutely, Todd, for sure. The last few years, I've, I've had a variety of, of opportunities to speak in a variety of settings and visit some Lutheran schools across the country. And it's, it's really been great to see what they're doing. Some of them have been growing in numbers and so forth. It's exciting to hear about that and, and so forth. It's a great opportunity, I think, to lean into our educational heritage. The Lutheran Church just has an astounding heritage when it comes to education. Early on in our synod especially, nearly every congregation had a school. It was really seen as the responsibility of churches and parents to educate their kids. So yeah, I think this is really a moment to leverage our heritage and and learn our heritage and recover it and reclaim it. That certainly is going to be something uh, very important moving forward.
0: What guiding principles should be in place when dealing with progressive education generally?
1: So, yeah, no matter what educational option we choose, whether we continue to use a public school, whether we consider parochial school, homeschooling, or some variety of those, whatever it might be, I think there's some principles that we can think about to keep in mind. One is to fortify family. The family unit has to be the central aspect to any option that's chosen. And this really, I think, is especially today a profoundly countercultural move that requires some creativity to pull off, it can be challenging. But I think that's one of the things we really need to keep central, that the family unit has to be the basic unit of our educational approach. I think a second principle is to retain control. Educational control, we shouldn't give that up easily. That should reside in the smallest unit possible, right? And that would primarily be family, church, local community. So I think we shouldn't give up that responsibility of retaining control of education no matter what option we choose. And then the third thing I'd say is we should lean classical. And what I mean by that is education should tend in a classical direction. Since classical education is not built upon the philosophies that have driven American education for the last century or so. And earlier when we talked about traditional education, those were some of the classical principles I was talking about. And classical education also really provides a unified curriculum based on the proposition that truth, goodness, and beauty objectively exist and are knowable, and that Christ, the divine logos, is the center of all of those things. So I think no matter what option we choose, we also should lean into that classical direction. And if we're not familiar with it, learn about it. Now, certainly whatever educational options we'll choose, there's going to be hard decisions, but I'm also excited uh, about the time we're living in. Uh, there's a lot of things on the table when it comes to education that, that haven't been in the past. A lot of people are rethinking what they want for their kids. And so there's a lot of opportunity as well. So I think we shouldn't be fearful. We shouldn't be nervous. We should be able to sort of dig in and lean in and have some excitement about trying something.
0: Is it possible to reform public education?
1: Honestly, I'm not really sure, Todd. I think the foundations and assumptions that we've talked about today are really built so firmly into the system. So it's hard to envision a quick change. I'll say that for sure. It would be a multi-generational project. It would take a long time. And the reform, uh, I don't think, would come through the things that are commonly thrown out there, like throwing more money into the system or paying teachers more or you know, setting new curricular standards or adding more technology to the classroom, those common proposals for educational reform aren't really the root of the issue. They're not gonna fix the contaminated soil that the tree's been growing in for so long. It really would have to be a whole new vision of what education is, and really a return to an older vision. So I think here we're, we're in an era of transition in the realm of education, both in K-12 and higher education. I think there's all sorts of educational options emerging, uh, like we said here today, and there, um, Uh, Certainly, it's going to be interesting to see what unfolds in the years to come. And again, I think it's something to be excited about, to participate in, and so forth.
0: Why is it still important? Let's say someone says, I'm going to homeschool my kids, that's the direction I'm going to go. Why is it still important that such a parent continue to show up at local school board meetings?
1: Because truth matters. All kids deserve what's true, good, and beautiful, and what really leads to lasting human flourishing. I think also because we care about our communities. And because of representative democracy in, in the system of government we live in, it's part of our vocation as citizens, right? So, yes, I've resigned from public school teaching, but I still keep in touch with my fellow teachers and administrators, I want to see what's going on. I want to keep up with what's going on. Just today, I had a a good conversation with a substitute teacher in our school system, and she was sharing with me some of the the concerns and issues that she has and some of the the things students are dealing with. So it's not a call to disengage if we make different educational options. It really allows us to engage maybe in different ways uh, and continue to do so because, again, truth matters for everyone.
0: Josh Pauling is a classical educator. He's head elder at All Saints Lutheran Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and author of a three-part series for Salvo magazine titled Schoolhouse Rots. You can read it at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk on Demand Archives. Josh, thanks.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Confessional Lutheranism is thriving around the world, and Luther Academy is committed to serving Lutheran pastors and lay people to the ends of the earth. Find out about the worldwide mission work of Luther Academy at lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. Next week on Issues Etc., we'll have Dr. Albert Moeller respond to E.J. Dion's pro-gay marriage column. We'll get a review of the movie Avatar from Pastor Ted Geese. We'll have Pastor Hans Feeney make the case for worshiping on Christmas Day. And we'll play What's Your Favorite Christmas Hymn and Why. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening.
2: is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Jesus the Good Shepherd says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them,
0: and they follow me. I give them eternal life. We invite you to join us as we listen to the voice of the Good Shepherd and follow Him who gives us eternal life. Sunday worship services at 9 a.m., Sunday school and Bible class at 10.30, Good Shepherd Lutheran Church, Arnold, Missouri, on the web at goodshepherdarnold.org. That's goodshepherdarnold.org.